like the show? Want to listen to episodes early? Consider becoming a patron. Starting at the $3 a month level, patrons get access to a custom patron-only feed where we put out episodes of Upstairs Studio podcasts like the Child Care Bar and Grill, Miss Becky's Classroom, That Early Childhood Nerd, the Renegade Rules podcast, and others early. That feed is just for patrons. You could be one of them. Go to patreon.com slash playvolutionhq or click the link in the show description to learn more. Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santi, and I've got two uh, guests on the show today, two co-hosts, um, uh, Corey Berg and Richard Cohen. Uh, Corey, would you introduce yourself first to folks? Sure. I am a director in Dallas, Texas of, I'd say, a mid-sized program, a faith-based program, Hope Day School at Cathedral of Hope Church. Uh, and I also have a Facebook page, uh, ECE from the Heart with Corey Berg, uh, where I post helpful tips and hopefully a little bit of inspiration along the way. Thank you. Richard, do you want to say anything in case it's someone's first time ever listening and they don't know? Who Wait, we're recording? I yeah. thought we were playing a game where we were going to drink every time someone says co-regulation. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's oh. not what we're doing here. Awkward. <laughs> well, I'm Richard Cohen, and, and maybe you know me and maybe you don't, but mainly I'm here to fanboy over Corey Berg. Um, <laughs> my plan is to mainly listen and ask her questions and uh, occasionally mansplain to the men in the audience. <laughs> Richard, God. Um, well, thank you both for being here. So this conversation started, actually, what we're about, the conversation we're about to have started just between Richard and Corey. And um, uh, then Richard contacted me and was like, we've got to have her. She's got to be on the show. So thank you again, Corey, for being here. Um, for our quote to start the conversation, I'm just going to pull this right out of an email from Corey. So Corey is the quote for this episode. And um, so she was identifying some, some needs that she saw um, in terms of COVID conversations and reopening decisions and, um, and, and just the state of our field in a pandemic. Uh, so one of the things she said was... Um, after talking to a director in a small town in South Dakota with no cases versus my own city, which is one of the top five hotspots, it was clear our measures would be different. Our care for children would look different, but it would still be care. 
pandemic care is similar to any other issue in the early child in early childhood or education in general. It's individualized. It's scaffolded, meaning you can phase in and out of measures and build up to things with children, staff, and families. And it is responsive, meaning it will take into account new information and new factors and not hold on to past ways of doing things if something new is called for. There's a lot in that. <laughs> There's a lot in that. But Corey, I just want to let you speak to it first, and then we'll kind of jump in. Well, I think like anybody else, when they start to speak, um, even if they're speaking in a big way, it does come somewhere beneath the layers from their own personal lived experience. Mm -hmm. And for me, I'm a director who's been open the whole time, except when recently I had my first shutdown due, due to a positive case in the community. Mm. And, um, and this has been a hard road. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it sounds ridiculous to say that, but it has brought um, so many questions to me up about how we relate to each other as educators, not just to children, but to how we talk to each other and support each other as we find answers and change answers along the way. And for me, you know, the first, you know, we're in like, March 2020th or somewhere around there when I just first told somebody, yeah, I'm open next week. And the first words were, oh my gosh, I don't know how anybody who cares about kids could be open right now. Yeah. And my yeah. gut went, this is somebody I care about who's just said that and had no, has no idea how they've hurt me by just saying that and not knowing all the factors, mm -hmm. like how many ER workers I care for their children. You know, there's just a lot of pieces. So when I talk about context, it's a lot of things. It is the age groups of the children you serve because there's such a difference. I mean, there's things that are similar, but infant toddler pandemic care is different than preschool care. It is the families that you serve and the types of jobs they do. And I don't mean, I don't wanna diminish the work we do to just some kind of transaction, but it is a piece. Mm -hmm. We serve a role in the community beyond just us. Uh, helping children develop we do we do there is the actual care part and being with them during the day and keeping them safe and then there's pieces you know your city and your town and your physical building is a part of the context and your philosophy is part of the context um, and there's you know context is just so big mm -hmm. and every piece of that mm -hmm affects pandemic care in some way. And so as I started talking to people and getting the subtext of their words and the tone of their words, and sometimes their outright words, um, I, I tried to be non-defensive, but sometimes I just wanted to hit my head against the wall because it felt mm -hmm. like in normal times, you understand this concept working with kids. Why can't you apply that to me as somebody who's just trying to do the best job I can 
And I guess that's where those words came from. Yeah. And I, I think it's um, because I, I, I go back and forth between, um, well, it's just the wrong thing for kids, but it, it, to, to reopen, you know, or, um, well, families still need to work though. And if the families can't work, that affects the children in a different negative way, maybe. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's truly no right answer. I think we're just all in, in such a place of, of fear and uncertainty that it is seeping into all of our interactions and making it really hard to be sort of gentle with each other. And, um, as, as maybe, thoughtful as we might have been before when we're speaking to each other. It's Don't just, get me wrong. That's a wild place to, to be in. Yeah. You get me going too. My irritation will come yeah. out. So, I mean, yeah. I don't want to say like I'm perfect in any yeah. way. No, um, no, I don't think that you were. <laughs> so, um, but it's it's a it's such a weird spot to be in when there's already a lot of fractures in our field, and, and a lot of barriers that we put up between each other, um, or between ourselves. That this just adds such a complex and scary layer to everything. Yeah, Corey, when you were talking about the pre-pandemic times as being quote unquote normal. <laughs> um, right? My the last 36 years in this field uh, has been uh, living in a profession that was not, that was already outside the cultural norm of the world around us. Um, and that the best early childhood educators knew that and understood that, but that most of the people in our field, and remember, right, we've got a 43% attrition rate, annual attrition rate in our field. So our field is constantly having people come in of it, come in it and out it before mm-hmm. the pandemic ever happened. But most of them aren't enculturated to do what you've done so, um, so amazingly and why I've come to admire you so much, which is to think critically and, as you said, creatively. Because we're enculturated in a society that wants us to think, yes, no, black, white, all, nothing. And your message has been, no, we have to, we needed to break past that before this ever happened. Mm-hmm. But now, if we're all going to support each other, we've got to realize that there's no one right answer. And we have to each help each other figure out what might be the best in our context and know that even that could change tomorrow. Yeah, you know, I'm just, as, as you said that, I'm remembering this key moment where I think it, I, again, I think it was in the first week or two where it was where we first understood we're talking about social distancing. And um, I think I was, you know, hearing, okay, sitting kids at different tables or something like that. And I was like, I feel like such a bad person just even thinking about this. <laughs> right. Like I felt yeah. like such like a immoral human being for even thinking about how to keep kids apart. Right. And I called a friend of mine who I just who in the field who I value her opinion thinking she was going to tell me you're a horrible human being, not, she wouldn't use those words, but you know, would be like, of course you can't do it. And she said, Corey, you have to keep kids safe. Mm -hmm. And it was like a little bit of the weight started to open up where she, by just that little bit, she told me, 
it's safe to think about safety. Like it's okay. Even though I've been in the world where we're like opening up risk play and all that, that I'm not bad because I'm thinking that. Mm-hmm. And um, it doesn't mean just go all out one way, but it does mean it's okay to think differently than what you did before. Just a small statement. Yeah. Well, like any ethical consideration, you know, any, any kind of decision you're trying to make based on what our ethics are. And, and, you know, if we're going to use NACI's code of ethical conduct, which I really like, you know, the very first thing is do no harm above all, do no harm. So there's, so you think, oh, okay, so that's the baseline. We're going to do no harm. But then you think, okay, I'm keeping them physically safe by the social distancing, but what kind of weird social emotional messages am I sending them by, by moving them or correcting their spacing or um, all of, all of that's going to feel like rejection, I think to a child. So, so then it's just, there's, it's just so hard, but it's all coming from a space of wanting to do what's right for children, I think. Um, So that's why I, I appreciated um, your idea of melding child development and safety, Corey, um, because that's exactly what we're all trying to do. And it's not going to look the same for every program, every person. Yeah. It's heart-wrenching because we are, uh, those of us who really understand what's best for young children, we're caught between <laughs> a rock and a hard place. Um, doing no harm and keeping them safe in the short term in this bizarro pandemic world we're in and how some of those strategies are completely opposed to helping them thrive in the long term uh, throughout the rest of their lives after they leave us. Mm -hmm. And we're stuck trying to figure out which is the best direction to go. And I just, you know, I'm not on the front lines anymore, but my heart goes out to you, Corey, because no decision can ever be a Mm -hmm. perfect right decision. Yeah. I have a friend who's been um, open the whole time for a hospital. Like she, her childcare center is attached to a hospital. So it's all hospital staff. And she, it is really worn on her. You can see the physical effects and hear the emotional effects of her trying to do what everybody needs and, and feeling like she's always, you know, letting one element of the, of her stakeholders down in some way. And I, I can't imagine having, having been open during this time, I'm, I'm struggling thinking about going back and I don't have to do it for another month or so. So I, so hats off to you, Corey. (laughs) I've had this image in, in my head as I've gone along and that is of, and it's a different industry, but there are some things that are different and that is, uh, people working in healthcare, pediatric healthcare. Okay. And, and I, again, I have, this as a lived experience. I, I had a, a childhood with some, a lot of surgeries due to some extremely severe scoliosis. And, um, my parents and doctors had to do things to me that felt horrible. Mm-hmm and were hurtful and I know it was hard for my parents to see me go through that and so you know I was a little bit of an older child but it's brought it up thinking about young children who have masks on around them who have to be isolated and there are parts of it that aren't okay and certainly not fair and, and I've thought about that a lot because that's how, in some ways, I felt with childcare in a, on a different level, obviously. 
but we would never go to a nurse or to a doctor who is doing something to help that child and say, you know, you don't care about that child because you're taking precautions. And, and yet that's some of what has happened in our field. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not perfect. I mean, that's not a, a perfect analogy, but it's something that's just been kind of tossed around in my, my mind a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you are doing the front lines work, it isn't just the child, obviously, that you are thinking of. You are thinking of every person in that community. And I think a lot about my teachers. Mm-hmm. And that is the piece that I have said from the very beginning for myself. I wanted, I could not do something that I know would put my teachers at physical harm. Right now, it just came out here in Dallas. Three teachers, preschool teachers in Dallas alone, over the course of the pandemic have been sick enough to be in ICU. Now there's not enough data there, information from that data to know whether it was due to a contact outside or inside, but somehow related. And Mm -hmm. that just made me go, okay, Corey, (laughs) maybe you did the right thing. Mm -hmm. Did the right thing in staying open? did the right thing in allowing my staff to wear a mask. And now we're at the point where we're wearing shields over masks. You know, maybe you did the right thing to be, to, to say, I'm going to, I'm going to venture into this territory of something so bizarre that feels like, you know, a sci-fi novel in order to keep going. So how have the children responded to the masks and the face shields? So, that's the piece. That's like the, the lesson, I guess, I would say, is like any good educator, we need to observe. We need to start with observation rather than projecting our ideas. And so, um, you know, I, I would say the process with children and adults adjust, viewing P, PPE and wearing it themselves is, is very similar, except the children adjust much more quickly and it's much easier than adults. So, you know, the first time, because in the very beginning, it was just me and my assistant director who were screening the staff. Very first day, we have it on, we're saying keep each other apart. The staff are like, what do you mean? You know? And, and the children, the first time they saw us, they're kind of like, wow, that's kind of weird. We were the first ones that they would see. And you could see like it, it was both the four-year-olds and the babies just kind of like, huh. You can see them processing and taking in information. And I can just say it is visually, when I look at them, the look on their face is similar to anything else that's different in their world. The first time they see somebody in a wheelchair or um, I have an image of my mind. The first time I saw a four-year-old see a female teacher wearing men's shoes and she looked at it, you know, it was like that kind of look. I saw that with both the mask and then when we went to the shield, which is really bizarre. Uh, And but with the masks, so we wore the masks and transitioned to all the staff wearing masks over about two to three weeks based on the conditions in our city. 
And then we finally went to masks with children two and older when um, there was some kind of order count. We've had so many county orders, I can't <laughs> keep them straight. But at some point there was one that was out there and it referred to children. And I already knew by that time the CDC had said something about children two and above. And I had already witnessed seeing teachers with kids close to their faces. And it was, I was thinking about that contact. So I was like, I think we're going to need to do masks at some point. Oh my gosh, I don't want to be the one to tell parents that we're going to do masks. And so when that order came through, I was like, we're doing masks. And I let, I gave out a text alert because it happened on a Friday. So parents would know by Monday. Well, the good news is prior to actually telling the parents this, the children, just by them being around adults wearing masks, which by that point they were fine with, had been starting to ask for masks um, because it's what the adults around them were wearing. So I think it's similar to, you know, they want a cell phone like we have a cell phone. <laughs> I don't know what the child development, I'm sure there's a word concept for that. But they want it. They want what we have. Mm -hmm. Are you still providing the close physical comfort? Are your teachers providing that? Yes, but it's thought through how we do it. So I'll admit the very first day, a teacher, we're taking kids. At that time, we had like a small group because we kind of like took kids in and put them in different areas. Now we don't. We like try to keep groups apart. One at a time brought back, but we had a small group she was taking, and I heard the teacher go, okay, let's hold hands and walk down the hallway, and I went, oh, we're all going to die right now, you know, the inside of me just yeah. kind of went, and I was like, don't say that, and then I was like, why are you, what, you know, trying to monitor my own awareness, why I had a big reaction, um, and so basically what I saw, let me, let me just start here, too. My staff, I adore my staff. They're all unique and amazing and wonderful people, but they could be any staff in America, right. okay? My staff are not bachelor's degrees in early childhood. Many of them, I have some that were hired in the middle of the pandemic. I have some that had started a week before. We are a, a snippet of, of childcare in America, mm -hmm. okay? Some have one or two classes in child development and most have nothing at all. Right. Okay. And so I just started talking to them about contact and I said, we got, we have to figure out a way to make this okay. And on their own, even without me directing them, they found ways to make it okay. Starting with day one. The kids are getting dropped off. We're closed for one week because it was a spring break for us. And they hadn't, the kids hadn't seen us. And like any time there's a break, there's going to be separation anxiety. And what they just naturally did, because I would have a group in a room. We, it was a church. So we've got like big space, a big like foyer place. Or, <laughs> and um, and uh, as kids were being brought in, they just naturally started singing to the kids. You know, like one of those big sound of music moments where the people start singing goodnight to the kids. They were doing that on their own and it became a little ritual and they, they found a way just singing a song to heart to heart connect to these kids and make this sci-fi novel okay. 
Brilliant. And yeah. then in terms of physical contact, um, I, this is just observing what teachers naturally do. This is not me telling them was that they start with the least amount of contact and see if that works with the child and then progressively, and it can happen very quickly, move to more contact. So first it is just, you know, getting a little bit closer, which might be bending down a little bit more or leaning in this way to your right or to your left. Sometimes just showing that you're doing that is enough for a child to feel this person's there for me. Tone of voice, eye contact, slowing down, and none of that is physical, and yet a lot of that can have an impact. And then I saw them start to do things like touch their, their, the body of the child in very non-intrusive and very small ways. So the shoulder, or I saw this beautiful moment with a toddler teacher, a brand new toddler teacher, where there was a, um, I think the child was like 14 months old coming in, little teary walking in, and she just had the little child's arm and she just lightly touched it. And the child calmed down like that. And um, I was like, that child didn't need a hug. Like even just that little bit. Um, in normal times, we would have scooped that child up and hugged them and walked them in, but a little touch was enough. And then if that's not enough, um, a side hug. And if that's not enough, you can, you just kind of know. At some point, you just kind of know, but you just don't go big hug face to face on all of them. Um, you can do a child's back to your chest. So every, both faces people are facing out and you can hold a child and calm a child that way. Um, and then if you actually do need to do an embrace, then just turn your head to the side so you're not face to face. But certainly the PPE helps those moments where you're close. Mm -hmm. And this is all natural. This isn't like, I, that sounded so technical, like a flow chart. <laughs> and ridiculous like academics and people like me like to do but but just everyday people figure this out i i feel like i need to 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 point out with all due respect and you know i have tremendous respect for you Corey, <laughs> that um there's not a lot of research that's backing everything you just described and so yeah. we're not saying that everyone out there should go do that. We want to be in an evidence. We want to, we always, another thing about our field is we want to use evidence-based practices. Mm -hmm. And this is also new. We don't have a lot of evidence for a lot of the techniques you just described. Yeah. On the other hand, what I would say as someone who's been in this field for decades is that what's gotten lost. Um, and I'm purposefully using this word because we are a female dominated field is intuition um, and we've gone so far into the world of data that intuition or instinct or gut uh, has gotten left behind so i really respect everything you just said from an instinctual point of view but i also feel like it's really important to point out that there's not science to back up the suggestions you just gave mm -hmm. yeah i i mean 
Well, and it's not ideal. Even though I'm saying this is what we're doing, I'm not in any way saying this is ideal. Right. <laughs> or we should do this in other times. Yeah. I think the only thing close to this that uh, prior to the pandemic would be talking to teachers about protecting themselves from like false abuse claims or false, those kinds of things. And how, you know, sometimes we do have to be careful about touch and how it's interpreted and that. Right, That's right. the only thing closest that I ever had conversations like this. And um, it's weird. It is weird. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, less than ideal could be the motto for, for what we're doing in the field every, everywhere right now. No, none of it is ideal. And honestly, before the pandemic, less than ideal sometimes fit. Um, right. But right now, we, yeah, I think it's, it's ethically blending that intuition and that evidence-based practice to figure out how to get through it. Right. There's another piece to the touch topic too. And that is the need of the teacher. Mm. And um, there was a day, I think it was, um, maybe we were about then and we were, uh, several of us were kind of standing out in the hallway because we have to wait for kids to get picked up in that. Mm -hmm. And I saw my teachers and they were just low, you know, you just felt that energy. And some of them, it started tearing up, like they're missing the touch of the kids. Mm -hmm. And working with directors because I've you know done video calls with consulting with with directors to help them sometimes I'll hear them say things you know when I talk about being thoughtful and intentional about how we touch kids in this that a response is oh but our school could never do that or I just you know as if as if they're the only school that wants to touch kill children, you know, we all do. Yeah. Well, that's part of being in the field is right. there is a piece to it that it fulfills our only own needs. And I actually had a moment of this last night at pickup time. We had a little toddler. I think she's uh, 18 months um, who was a little parent was a little bit late. And I, um, let me just say for myself as the director of the school, knowing how important it is that I have to keep myself safe. I am very touch deprived because I just, I, I know if I go down, we're in trouble. Mm -hmm. So I, I have not had a hug in five months and I was sitting in a chair and this toddler kind of jumped out of her little chair. She was sitting next to me and she came, walked over and just kind of, slunk herself on my, on my lap, you know, she was standing and kind of held on to my legs. And I was like, in that moment, I was like, oh man, it was like water for somebody who is thirsty. Yeah. Did I want to yeah. pick that little girl up and hug on her out of my own need? And I didn't, I said, oh honey, you know, and just kind of kept talking to her and, you know, whatever it was the leg. She wasn't close to my face. And then she just kind of popped back up on her chair. And I realized she didn't, my need for a hug or touch 
it was, she didn't need that, even though she reached out to me and was just kind of playing. And I think there's just a lot of moments like that where we'll see, you know, uh, what, and I don't even have a lesson about that or anything like that, <laughs> other than it makes it clear some of these moments, what are, what we need and what they need. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't always, that we should never think about our own needs because we are part of the system. <laughs> so I hear you talking about reflection and intentionality, right? Yeah. So we have to become self-aware of, of uh, whose need is being served here in this moment. We have to become self-aware in many ways. In this example, it's whose need is being here in the moment. And then out of that is intentionality, which is now I have to make an intentional choice either to get my need met or very specifically not to. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no and one right answer. There isn't. There isn't. Because I do know that, that, that the language of the, the caregiver or the teacher, the educator, having their need met, sometimes we look poorly on that. And for me, I'm saying the need for health and safety for the caregiver is very important. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's part of the cycle, right? Um, if, if we can't keep the adults healthy and safe, then we can't provide the care that the families need and we can't be as intentional with the children. Um, so, but so that, I mean, I understand that need though, that like I had a visceral reaction when you were describing that Corey, that toddler leaning up against you. Um, I, I have no idea how I will keep myself from just uh, hugging and holding and holding hands when I get back because I haven't been around children, period, since about mid-March, and I am in yeah. spirit withdrawal. <laughs> right, right. And back to what you said, Richard, I mean, I'm feeling it. I think adults are feeling it right mm -hmm. now. Um, I notice now just after five months, because all I am is my home and work. And I think I've been to a store three times in this, but I didn't notice my own modified social distancing because I'm at work all the time, but I'm like, Oh my gosh, I feel it. Like this month I felt it. Um, I am not saying there aren't going to be effects. Sure. Cause sure. I think there are going to be just like the depression had effects oh, on people. Absolutely. But I think it's unavoidable. Mm -hmm. The fact that there are going to be effects does not necessarily mean we don't do certain things. It just means we need to think about that and see how we can meet that need in other ways mm -hmm. or be mindful of keeping it to the yeah. minimum or something. Yeah, and then those habits of mind that we're developing through this as we have to be flexible, we have to be reflective, we have to be intentional. You know, we're a lot of people are that were that before the pandemic, but it's certainly intensifying now. We develop then that habit of mind and when the effects when we come face to face with those unknown effects, we'll be prepared to it, to deal with it because we've already established the kind of thinking and practice that it will require. To, right. to get through that. But we adults are, I think, less resilient than, than mm. young children. Yes. Less plasticity, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, we, we become creatures of habit and we don't like change. Mm -mm. And now all of us, we're just a subset of humanity, we early childhood <laughs> professionals. And now we find ourselves in this moment where we have to be flexible when some of us 
just have uh, spent our lives being pretty brittle. Um, and so even that's um, exhausting for, right. for a lot of us. Right. Um, and what you were talking about earlier, Heather, about ba responding to Corey about taking care of the teachers, it reminded me of the other piece, the other, one of the other pieces of what Corey wrote, which is we're talking about basic systems theory. Mm -hmm. And um, right, that we're all in this together and we're all, all of our uh, um, actions and reactions are, are uh, impacting each other. Um, so we have to take care of the children, we have to take care of the teachers. I guess the question that also bubbled up for me, Corey, is when Heather was saying, and I know we were saying it jokingly, is that, um, you know, less than ideal should be our motto which I totally get from an early childhood standpoint. But what's also true is we have these paying customers. Um, and so you can't say to them, oh, hey, by the way, we're giving you less than ideal care now. <laughs> so how do you handle the parent piece, Corey? Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. You know what? This was my life changing moment when I was in a training somewhere and somebody said, how many have you gotten to this field to work with kids? And we had to like step to one side of the room. It was yeah. one of those kind of professional right. development <laughs> activities. And then they said, how many have you gotten to this room to work with parents? Of course, nobody raised their hand, Right. but it was like, oh, you know, uh, it's hard <laughs> from a, an aspect of, you know, you know, when parents are starting to lose their jobs, when it's affecting them financially, when the ones who still need to go to work, um, uh, when they don't agree with what we're doing. I have had some parents that haven't agreed with my masks or have agreed with it on a, um, like an intellectual level, but don't want to introduce the pandemic into their child's life. Um, uh, financial is the biggest um, because pandemic care costs a lot more. And yet our customers, our family, I'm sorry, sometimes I use that word when I'm talking about it from a business perspective. Sure. And I say that with the utmost respect, yeah. but um you know, they're financially strapped. Um, but also now this is what, having gone through a shutdown, that's a whole nother layer, which then I could see directly goes into the practice in the classroom, again with PPE. So when I, I'm in Dallas, again, one of the top five, mm -hmm. um, when it was probably a month ago, as I talked to other, pretty in touch with other Dallas directors, where we, it was like a cloud starting to come to the centers. Mm -hmm. We first started mm -hmm. getting reports of positive cases that were like three people away from the center. And then the next week was two and one, and then it hit all at once. And we all were getting shutdowns within like a two week period. And this was now, just three weeks ago, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was like the end of June, end of June-ish. And there were some that still had some before. But um, prior to that, Dallas County, the health department would only do like a, a more, you know, sh shut down for a couple of days and then you can reopen. But because of these high numbers, and we're at like, 
I don't know. I kind of stopped listening to the news. I just know it's over a thousand new cases a day. Um, I should also say the population of Dallas, Fort Worth, and Metroplex is bigger than most entire states. Yeah. So that's another big contextual piece. Um, but um, so it was all hitting us. And then when then I was one of the ones in the group that they started doing the 14 day shutdowns on for anything, no matter what social distancing you did, no matter if you weren't mixing groups or that. And after long talks with the epidemiologists, thank you to them and the work that they do and the fact that they took so much time <laughs> with this crazy director who likes to know way too much about these things. Um, and probably they don't want me to share, but I did. Um, uh, I then realized in order to keep going, I've got to shield up these teachers more or we're not going to be able to keep going. And it's going to be even more disruptive to children and to families. And we're going to be opening and shutting and opening and shutting and opening and shutting on a day-to-day -day basis. So um, just how those things all start going back and layering in on the decisions that you make. And, and a decision that made sense for you a month ago may not still be the best decision right. today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely came back and went, Oh my gosh, I thought I was being really strict in March and April. And <laughs> if, the, if I knew then what I was doing now, I mean, like just things like now, uh, again, I'm in a church, so I've got a big fellowship hall. My teachers, it looks, their seating for lunch breaks looks like, uh, I joke, it looks like um, somebody's proctoring an SAT exam because oh. I've got all these little tables. It says, if you're in this cohort, you can sit here. But after doing all those, uh, the investigation interview and how many questions were related to how staff interact with each other, uh, I realized I have to keep the teachers apart from each other as much as possible too. That's a whole nother layer that is very rarely talked about. That was um, in that in that investigation interview, the reasoning for the long shutdowns, even if you've kept everybody apart, has a lot to do with staff and their connection. So um, it's just so easy to pass it. And then also things like shared bathrooms. Oh. And so what I learned, it was a bit of a tough pill to swallow was all these things that I had been doing that I thought were going to be there to help me in the case of a shutdown that I thought would only mean I only have to shut down that one classroom oh. were really in the end just there another good reason just to help keep clusters cases from happening but it, I'm still going to have to do a long shutdown of the entire school yeah it's not fun. I don't envy you. <laughs> I really don't. That's the trick. Part that's of me. what we, that's, I feel like we need to be talking about how to make it fun when it's not fun right now. Right. Oh, that's, I need yeah. help with that. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't have that answer either. There's, that's, there's part of me that really is sort of, um, annoyed that I'm not a bigger part of the decision-making for the programs that I and part of, um, but then there's part of me that, you know, listens to your story and thinks, oh, <laughs> I'm really lucky not to have to make those day-to-day 
um, ongoing decisions with constantly changing information and constantly yeah, just I mean changing. It, and I've thought that from the beginning that it's hard when you have no control over the decisions. And so for those of us that are decision makers, it's really important to try to find ways somewhere to let our people make decisions. Yeah. So if it is, if you're going to make them wear PPE, then give them a choice. You know, I've two different kinds of shields or you can bring your own, mm -hmm. whatever it is. And then if you are a person not making decisions to at some point say a word of support, personal word of support to the people who are and, and, and just say, I know you got a lot on your plate and just know, I know you're thinking about us and trying to do best mm -hmm. and, and realize you're not going to agree with every single thing they do. But you know what? That's all the time. I kind of joke about it when you're, when you're an administrator, People say all the time, well, it's not how I would do it. <laughs> and I just kind of chuckle because it's like, well, of course not. That's what, of course it's not. Nothing would ever be exactly how you would do it because uh -huh. you have a different going back to gut. And all I can do is do it based on what my gut says, mm -hmm. because I'm the one who has to live with myself at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So, um, Ugh. Yeah, that's something. We're learning a lot. Uh, yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm sure. Yeah, and I. Okay, um, do we have time for me to ask Corey another question? Sure, go right ahead. So a whole other piece of this system, or at least it was for me as a director, was the people I reported to, the board of directors, and and that and all the legalistic concerns that mm -hmm. they have, the liti mm -hmm. litigious concerns they have, that's their that they're responsible for as the board. Are you in that kind of a situation, Corey? Yeah. And how are you handling that aspect of it? So I haven't, I actually, right before this, got off a Zoom call with a board member. Um, I've, I've discovered things with that too. So um, that, um, so just like this process has identified, I don't think I've said this in this interview here, but I've said it elsewhere. The, the whole process identifies, will bring, shed light on areas for growth. Personally, okay. for the center, it will for your boards too. Oh. And so um, we have had to do a lot of quick, last minute, quick decision making with, especially within the first like two weeks where we thought we, you know, school districts were just lengthening their spring break by a week. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> yes. and so we were making some real uh, uh, accommodations for tuition and then we do something and then realize, no, that isn't going to work. Um, and so you, if you work with a board or any other kind of stakeholders, you will see them start to wrestle with, well, who's most important in this picture? <laughs> And you may for a while cater to one group and realize, okay, we've gone too far this way. Now we got to go this way. Okay. Yeah. So you're just kind of going this, uh, you're dealing with how do we provide certainty in times of that? It is not certain. How do we not promise something that we can't deliver follow through with right now? People are trying you know, going from trying to plan out the next month that now we need to start making decisions about, you know, three months at a time because we can't keep going this mm -hmm. way. Um, and uh, 
So one thing, realizing also how important it is to have some, both diversity and unity. My board originally has had times where um, the view, some members have felt different about the pandemic than I have. And that was a bit hard. Because mm -hmm. I'm saying, uh, you know, it's not a hoax. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, and these, these steps that I'm taking, how we staff that then relate to finances, you know, we've got to take these things into account. That has been a lesson for me. It's been a lesson for me as a leader to say, Corey, you've just got to stand up and let your voice be heard. Cause in the end, you're the one directing the ship. Even if there is a board, you've got to like, not, maybe it's at the point that you have to say it stronger, even if they don't like you. Mm -hmm. it's, that's not what it was. Cause I don't want to talk about my board that way, yeah. but I mean, you know, like I've had to like gird my loins or <laughs> word and get my voice because I am the one working this job. And then um, just uh, realizing uh, things go so fast that they have to be flexible, just like we are mm -hmm. um, on a day-to-day -day basis. In the very beginning, a, a board can feel similar like to how everybody else in the field felt, like nobody wants to say anything. So, you know, the, some of the things in the first two weeks where I was like, oh my gosh, okay, we're going to need this. I need this policy right now. Um, uh, sometimes there's moments where your board just says, does what you tell them. <laughs> and that might sound great. Yeah. But I was like, holy cow, they just made this big change and didn't even question it and now I'm really gonna feel responsible if it's the wrong idea <laughs> yeah you know there's just so many like layers to working with the board and I'm sorry because that was like a really roundabout way to answer your question Richard but yeah it's complicated yeah well so it uh, sounds like from oh. your answer more than just the specifics about the board that and just of the long list of things I'm grateful to you for Corey is that you just modeled for Heather's listeners um, what a strong, empowered leader can look like and has to rise up to, to in general, but specifically through this crazy uh, context we're in, and that you can be strong and also to, you know, name your page, deliver ECE with, from the heart, but you can also be strong and powerful. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a lot of, of us out there in our field that, um, are scared to rise up like you've just modeled for them. So I'm glad you did that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard. That's a female leader thing. I'm sure maybe it's not just a gender I, thing, but I know I've heard about part. it where it's like, you know, cause I, Oh, here, here's a good example. When, when, when you get your, your nasty letters, cause everybody's going to get them. A parent's upset that you're not refunding something or that they're going to say things like, you know, out of fairness or out of compassion or care. <laughs> They'll pull on those because you're early childhood. You know, people mm -hmm. would never go to their apartment complex and go, um, well, you know, I've been living with my boyfriend for five months and I haven't even been there, so I shouldn't have to pay rent. <laughs> right? Yes. But I they use that do analogy. that to early childhood, 
right? And yeah. and there's just something of pulling on the heartstrings there. And as a leader, you have to learn to go that there are times I'm going to be strong. I have to be business oriented. And that doesn't mean, you know, I'm a heartless. Bitch. Yeah. It doesn't have to be <laughs> I'm heartless. I'm okay. So I'm yeah. sorry. I'm talking. No, much. I think it sounds like we just outlined three more podcasts. Like we need to do <laughs> working with boards, leadership, decision fatigue. <laughs> yeah. Taking care oh. of teachers, taking care of children. Yeah. Right. So this could And then be I think the last spin-off. thing I would add in is not that I want the last word, but just that, 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 I, that I feel moved to say is that this whole system that we've just now outlined that, that Corey has spoken to exists within a greater system. Um, right. And, and I'm speaking just your, your, your listeners are international Heather, but so it's true everywhere, but I'm just speaking for the United States. We have an election coming up and uh, we have to change the system that surrounds the system that Corey was just talking about. Mm -hmm. And we have to vote. You have to look at uh, the candidates that are on your ballot and find out the ones who understand what Corey's talking about. And, and I know some of you don't like either of the presidential choices, (laughs) but um, you have to read into uh, their platforms. If, they even have one Mm -hmm. and make sure that you are um voting people in uh that are diverse that are uh not that diversity is the answer and not that being female is the answer but it brings but breaking the old structure has to happen yeah Yeah. so that the funding streams and the policies that for example separate us from education funding because we're childcare, that's got to go away Mm-hmm. And so we have to change that greater system in which Corey's already working so hard to operate in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We can end it on that challenge. <laughs> Don't out put the man the last it. word. You two say something. I just said a word, Richard. You didn't oh, okay. get the last word. <laughs> well, I just want to say a word out there yeah. to every person who's struggling. Because everybody is. Whether you're a teacher, a parent, a director, whether you're open or not, whether you're a speaker who's had all your engagements shut down. And let's just all do it. We can. I mean, I know it's touchy feely, but you know, sing your circle time song and let's like hold hands from a distance and keep each other in our hearts because it's, it's tough. Mm -hmm. And the only way we can get forward is by supporting each other through the really scariness. Mm -hmm. And that is the very best thing we can do for our children, no matter what little uh, programmatic detail might be different in how you choose to do this from me. What we really need, our children need is, is us to work together and keep having conversations like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great, uh, great way to wrap up the conversation. <laughs> Corey, thank you again so much for uh, taking the time to talk with us today, but also being so thoughtful in your preparation and and bringing your real life experience to people who are are um, in the same boat or about to get back in the boat as they reopen. Um, so I, I appreciate that so much. And um, oh, so your your Facebook page, and do you also have a website? I, I want to make sure people website. can find you. Okay. I, I'm like, 
I'm non-technical. Just, yeah, that's where I can be found. I just, yeah, I just imagine people will want to maybe reach out either to be encouraging or to tap Yeah, definitely. And I really try to help uh, people send me some messages and I start out everything. I'm not an expert, but there are some of you who are out there who have in cities, small towns that don't have an active health department. So, yeah, um, yeah. you know, we can reach out and I'm, I'm happy to do what I can or connect anybody. Awesome. So, yeah. And we'll link your page when the episode comes, comes out. So people who are listening can find you. Um, all right. Well, let's, let's wrap this one up. This was a, a really good talk and I feel like all I did was not along. So this will be a really interesting video <laughs> to release too. It's just me and Richard nodding while Corey uh, shares her wisdom with us. So um, thank you both. Again. And then let's the three of us get back together and have and do that drinking game. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, let me, let me stop recording first though. <laughs> All right. Thanks everybody for listening to another episode of that early childhood nerd. Uh, we hopefully will have you back again, listeners next week. Bye. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.